0: I have a dream that all men are created equal. Welcome back to Your Story. I'm your host, Ian Kath. This is episode 12. Just before we get into the show, a quick reminder, there's a few things over at the site if you want to check them out. I've written a little bit more about my plans in the last post, and I'd like to repeat them here if you don't get over to the site, just so that everybody's got a bit of an idea of what's going on. Right from the very beginning of this program, I've had an idea to take it a little bit further. If I felt like it, if it was going well, and it is going well, I'm rather pleased with how it's all happening. And I've been wanting to take the whole program to the greater world because I want to step out of my own locale here. Last week, I borrowed a bit of money, I took some equity out of my home, and I've bought a little bit of equipment, a little bit of equipment so that I can be mobile. You know that I've got a bit of a recording studio here at home, it's only a simple little unit, but and I've got a good in-field recorder, but I needed to have a few more things. So I've gone out and bought myself an internet mobile phone, a laptop, a bit of storage, uh, that sort of thing. This way I can be completely mobile, I can take your story anywhere in the world, frankly. Initially I want to actually trial a bit of methodology that I'm messing about with. So in April, next month, I want to go to Melbourne. The reason I want to go to Melbourne is I actually don't know the town that well, and I want to put myself in an environment that I'm a little bit uncomfortable with, and I want to find people who have some interesting stories. Depending on how that goes and the methodology that I work up, I want to then learn from the experience and I want to go in July and August to Europe. And in Europe, I want to basically do the same thing. I want to go through a couple of countries and I want to check out the place and I want to talk to people and I want to bring those stories to you. What I'd like to ask is some of you out there know people in Melbourne and I'd like you to think about the people who you know and who you think is interesting. Now, if you've been listening to the show for a little while, you know my style And it's quite a simple premise, really. It's Everybody's got an amazing story in them. And some people are very good at communicating that. If you know someone in Melbourne who you think, you know, they should get their message out there. What they've done is amazing for whatever reason. And you've already seen a few stories I've been able to find around the place. And you'd like to get their story out to a larger audience. um, Consider sending me a bit of information of how to get hold of them so that when I get to Melbourne I've got a few people to go and see and maybe they can link me on to a few more people. Well, I'm going to be down there for about a week and I'd like to try and get as many people as I can in that period of time. The methodology I'm going to attempt to work up, and I really don't know how efficient I can be at this, is basically to record them and quickly that day do the edit do my voiceover like I'm doing right now, and get it posted. So basically, during the five or seven days I'm in Melbourne, you'll actually be following me day to day as I travel through Melbourne meeting these people, and hopefully the posts will only be a few hours behind the actual recording. That methodology might be a bit of a hard ask, depending on how much work's involved in it, but I want to give it a go, and maybe I can make it work. We'll see. Just remember the uh, podcast site is yourstorypodcast.com and there are email links over there so if you want to send me a bit of information bounce me an email it's probably the best way you can also make comments there at the bottom of each post you can also get all the links to itunes and the feeds and everything else that you need in order to get the show downloaded to your mp3 mp3 um, playback unit your ipod if you want to help the show you can actually help in a way that doesn't really hurt your back pocket at all and frankly it's quite simple along the top of the each post there is a uh, a few links to stumble on and dig in places like that you can actually leave a uh, a bit of a dig for me and that helps for me to be found you can also go to itunes by clicking on the link and there you can actually post a comment and if you post a comment and rate it by the star value that actually gives your story a certain um, amount of uh, how would you say it? Uh, it qualifies it. It makes it a little bit easier to find so that it bubbles through the mire a bit better and it makes it a bit easier for people to find me. There's all these search catalogs like that where people can find me but also there are some podcasting directories and networks out there And at the moment i've sort of been getting onto a few of them each week i get myself onto a few more of them and lately i've just got onto blueberry so if you want to uh, not go to itunes you can go to the blueberry network and you can also get hold of the program i'd love to hear from you i know you're all out there i hope you're enjoying the show get back to me if you feel like it remember the music's from iota promo net you can get the albums that the music that i've used has been lifted from and the links are at the bottom of the post so get pop on over there and get the music if you'd like We all live in a community, don't we? And we have our understanding of our own culture. What happens when somebody comes into our culture from outside? They've been in another environment and they've heard about us and they've been introduced to our culture through the media and the like. Well, today's show, Adam, is going to tell us a little bit of what that's like and his shock and awe of coming to Australia with the expectations that he was fed through the British media. And the reality of arriving here and finding it a quite a different place and quite bizarre to what he actually expected, uh, being quite different. And, uh, yeah, some of the things are good. Some of the things aren't so good. We discuss his views. Uh, he's also a working psychiatrist, and he works with drug and alcohol people. And he gives us a bit of an insight as to what it's like in that world and it's a fascinating insight into the Australian mental health scene and also the way the system lets people down but also the way in which it can and it sometimes does help them it's a fascinating insight into community care and the way that community can help people who are marginalized to rise I hope you enjoy the show Adam and I are sitting here having a beer, and uh, I've known you for a few years. You're a Brit living in Australia. Who really should know
1: better than to fall asleep on Palm Beach for an hour without any suntan cream?
0: <laughs> so you cooked yourself, eh, hey, buddy?
1: i I think I'm slightly pink. I feel slightly
0: <laughs> dark Yeah, you're well coloured today, mate. You're you're an intelligent, articulate psychiatrist working for a very interesting government department. Yeah. And you're I, and you're a Brit living in Australia.
1: Yeah. Um, oh, I mean, Australia just wasn't what I thought it would be.
0: <laughs> Before I arrived, I was you expected convicts. No, not, no,
1: not at all. I was I was imagining a society that was egalitarian, liberal, and tolerant. And the Australians I met on the way down here went, "That's not the Australia that we live in, and that's not the Australia that John Howard's created." And, you know, it didn't actually take very long to be in Sydney to realise that Australia wasn't Bondi and Mardi Gras. And actually there was an awful lot of intolerance that was demonstrated at a senior political level, which didn't seem to reflect the way most people lived their lives and wanted to live their lives. So this is an incredibly multicultural country. You know, you've got little Spain, little Vietnam, little Thailand. In fact, there's lots of little Vietnams, but um, but the political leadership didn't seem to reflect that. And as for New South Wales government, I mean, I had very little interest in politics before I arrived here. Right. But New South Wales government, I mean, just fantastic. It's just one long
0: soap opera. <laughs> okay. Um, which, if I was. So, what's a Brit's perception of Australia from Britain? Well,
1: I, I, I don't think. I, I think unless you've been here, you don't know anything. What, what, did, you think, what did you
0: expect to come to? <laughs> oh, um, sons I mean, and so daughters. Um, no, because I never watched. So.
1: No, because I never watched Neighbours. Never watched Home and Away. So I had not, nothing to glean from that. Australians I've met were. Good people who enjoyed having a laugh and um, you know, spoke with a bit of an accent and um, and you really liked your sport and were really good at it and when you weren't really good at it you got really upset.
0: Um, but no I Didn't mean it seemed like one big giant playground.
1: Yeah, I mean sun, sunshine, beach, blonde, surf. Three
0: hundred and sixty five die party people.
1: Well yeah, and, and certainly you know, wouldn't imagine it would rain. i' oh, was shocking. Um, and, and had no idea of the history. So the, fir- so the first book I read when I arrived, it was John Pilder A Secret Country. And I was stunned how much Australia had sacrificed for everyone else by themselves. So up until the 1950s, giving the best of your country to a colonial country that clearly didn't give a shit about you. I found entirely bizarre.
0: You're talking about Britain.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and then subsequently changing allegiance to America and then fighting in all of these wars that, you know, yes, I know there were submarines outside Darwin. And yes, I understand that, you know, there was a genuine fear by some Australian people that you might get invaded by Japan but then subsequently and send troops to places like Vietnam. I mean... Or currently Afghanistan. Absolutely. Iraq. Absolutely. I just find it bizarre. And, and then, you know, all the Aboriginal stuff. So, you know, all of, all of that. I mean, that the rest of the world doesn't know that. The rest of the world doesn't know about stolen generation. The rest of the world doesn't know any of that. And you know, I tell people that until 1961, Aboriginal people were counted as livestock. 1967.
0: or oh, 67. Yeah, that's right. Count- under the Flora and Fauna Act. Absolutely. I mean, they... Fauna.
1: But the rest of the world doesn't know. And when I go back to the UK, I spent six weeks in the UK in September October of 2007. And Australia made, you know, like somewhere around the front page once. And do you know what made, when I say the front page, like there was something about Australia in the paper. Yeah,
0: yeah. One, page one, two or three, Something like that. Um, yeah. I'd imagine it may have been about Nicole Kidman or probably some of the popular stuff, maybe a bit of sport. Oh, so of no,
1: no, so no, no. So, sorry, uh, uh, yeah, so sport would always be floating around the back pages right. and, 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 and Kylie and, and, and kind of Nicole would pop uh, up in.
0: It would have, been, would have been when the government changed. No, No. I don't give a shit. Whether even it's even Kevin. When the government changed.
1: Ah, marginal. The chaser. The chaser. The chaser, when they did the their chaser stunt. doing the, the stunt at APEC. Right. Um. OPEC. APEC. 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 What's well, this? All right. I mean, yeah. I John, George Bush didn't know. Um. That made. That actually made the BBC
0: news. Right. And that was that was you know. So that when, was it. So when Kevy Rudd says sorry next week, uh, do you I, think that will come through? And that's sorry to the stolen generation. Yeah, I mean,
1: I, I'd like to think something as significant as that might register a blip, but I don't. I wouldn't be surprised if it didn't. And certainly, the British don't take any
0: responsibility. Right, right. Yeah. For those who don't know, who might be listening to this, a um, whole generation of people, probably two or three generations, were taken away from normally half-caste kids, a bit like Rod on episode 5 of the show, um, taken away from their parents and then given to white families and or raised within uh, government care. And uh, John Howard, our, the previous Prime Minister, refused to say sorry. Because how it?
1: can you take responsibility for a previous government's actions? That's
0: right, and it's not about <coughs> that, is it? And awesome. Kevin Rudd, first day of sitting, he is actually intending to say sorry. And... I'll be fascinated to see how the unfolds. Yeah, I'll be in, I'll be in Canberra
1: on Wednesday. for that? I don't know if I'll be anywhere near the parliament, but I have to say I'm um, I'm kind of tempted to take a little drive by and um... it's going to be huge. Yeah, it's going to be huge. I think it's a magnificent star. I think it is. Yeah. Of course, what the Australian population also don't realise is that Kevin Rudd looks like Joe 90. Who? Joe, about around the time of Thunderbirds there was a, I was wondering there, if there was be. an animatronics character called Joe 90. Right who looks like Kevin Rudd? <laughs> and Joe 90 was a super spy um, agent, but he was like a kid, you know? Yeah. Specky, four-eyed, blonde hair. And, and, you know, the number of Joe 90 was that every week for the new mission, he would go in and would sit under what looked like an elaborate head hairdryer and would have these, like, bits of information put into his brain that he required to have for the role. And I think the chaser should, you know... J-
0: Joe 90. Absolutely, and,
1: and, and that would be Kevin Rudd. And every week before going into Parliament, he'd have, like, you know, the trouble, climate change information. And
0: the trouble is, I don't think anybody here would get that. It sounds like it's a British thing. Mm. We got Thunderbirds here, but we didn't get that. I think you'd only have to have one episode of and, Joe uh, 90, yeah.
1: and I reckon you'd, you'd have it. And, you know, I think... I think... It, anyway. Um, so... Yes, yeah, so I don't actually... I, Australia is too, too far away. And and the stuff that gets exported is image. Right. Not right. substance, I don't think.
0: So you came here with this, would you say, false perception of Australia?
1: Oh, listen, I got offered a job to work in Liverpool. In... In Sydney. Yeah. And I went, is it near the beach? And they went, yes. <laughs> you know, and Liverpool's like 45k from the beach. You come in spinner. Well,
0: it's, it's probably closer than... Yeah. at Elk Springs.
1: Well, yeah, and, and closer than London, admittedly. But, um, yeah, I mean, it, 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 that, I mean, there were lots of things that didn't quite meet expectations. The size of the country, you know, I mean, for a start, is, is not something you can get your head around. So my first weekend here, I told my colleagues that I was going off to Brisbane for the weekend. Because when you look at the map of Australia, the sun on Brisbane and the sun on Sydney almost overlap. And in the UK map, where suns almost overlap on the weather news, that's like an hour or two drive. So I assumed I'd be able to drive up at the weekend when they turn around, it would take, you know, four and a half weeks or whatever, you <laughs> like know. 12 hours. Yeah, um, that that's food for thought. And mind you, listen, I listen to the news, and when I hear bulldogs, coast eagles, sharks, if someone went to me, are they NRA, NRL, AFL? Union or whatever. Or soccer? <clears throat> Wouldn't have much of a clue. Hmm.
0: I don't think I don't think a lot of people realise how many people out there don't care about sport. Because it's in the media so much, and so many people are passionate about it that everybody thinks that everybody is passionate about it. But there's a huge number of people I know who don't give a shit about sport.
1: But on the world stage, that's Australia's best of being recognised and acknowledged by the rest of the world, actually, I think that's probably the, the sad reality
0: of it. Hmm. It's good that we're good at it, but oh, but I is mean, it, is but, it good? that is but, it good? That it's the only thing that we're really known. No, for? no, it's your. It,
1: it, it is. I think the, the strongest card you have for kind of hitting above your weight. I mean, academically. You know australia does really well australia's oh, well, you know and, lo- and, exactly
0: and research and yeah, you know and you, you
1: hit well above your weight definitely but they're much more subtle for the rest of the world cricket rugby oh kylie and nicole
0: yeah, yeah the first half of the olympics yeah um that's
1: that's your best marketing
0: yeah yeah, and it definitely works, but um, I wonder how many people know who Professor Ian Fraser is, for argument's sake, as they get their um cervical cancer vaccination yeah, yeah. around the world. Yeah, probably um, not many, nope. Yeah, um, and, and they and the few of them are going to know that there is a, living in Australia, even if he is Scottish.
1: No, and yeah. and, and and one of Australia's smartest doctors, a guy called someone Marshall, who 20 years ago made the link between duodenal ulcers and a bacterial infection. Hmm. Over and in put. Yeah. yeah. And that took 20 years for, A, for him to get a Nobel Prize, and probably about 15 years before it really impacted on treatment. and And largely, I guess, because the pharmaceutical companies thought, oh, shit, he's actually found something that will cure ulcers as opposed to Allow us to sell lots of drugs for long-term maintenance. Yeah, it
0: took a lot of money out of the pharmaceutical companies, it? And probably took an awful lot of money out of Australia as well.
1: So, um, yeah, I don't know how, how, how great Australia is at recognising
0: its own champions. Um, as a as a pom living in Australia, uh, having had a good chance to have a bit of a look around, if you were to slap us around the face and tell Australia to wake up to itself, what would you recommend?
1: To be much more confident that as a nation you have the right to self-determination and there are things about being Australian. I mean, the fair go, you know, I I think is, at the heart of it, a real Australian paradigm. doesn't exist. Yeah, I think so. I think, I think, I think Australian people are you know, the majority of them, apart from, you know, the ones who are full of bullshit who live in the sorts of posh eastern suburbs and the North Shore suburbs where I sometimes live. Um, I think are fair, honest, straightforward people who don't like bullshit or pretension, who are basically. Helpful, who look out for each other. I mean, got the, the 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 fire services you have that's run by volunteers in the middle of whoop and places yeah. where I which I thought was in New South Wales when I first arrived here. Um, you know, magnificent kind of you know examples of altruism mm. and yeah, the bush fire brigades yeah. yeah,
0: and and in a lot of communities there is no other. There's,
1: absolutely, there's no paid fire and, and you know and, and you're sort of lifesavers and there's a lot of community altruism. Um, And I just don't know how much that's... Oh, no, listen, I think it is nurtured, but I think a lot of it's negated by lots of other policies that just seem to be
0: not that smart. Do other countries do things better? Though You know, like, those altruistic things are great, but there's a lot of stuff other countries do as well. Um, But... Okay, so we'd maybe do a few more, you, know, maybe yeah, you, do, you, maybe you, you You perhaps have more need for them. Yeah, but, um, but could we do things better? Like, does, do other countries do things better than us that we should embrace?
1: <sighs> oh, I, I, I feel I'm not in a position... I I just, you know, I I don't, I don't think I have a a valid enough opinion to to say that there, there are lots of things. And for a country that's 200 years old, I mean, God, it's functional. When you've got roads everywhere, every time I drive along roads in the middle of nowhere, I go, "Bloody hell,
0: when were these built? When did you get the time?" Um, And over such huge distances, exactly, with such a small population base. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I reckon probably maybe
1: Australians are kind of like the European, you know, Chinese. You know, they're smart, resourceful, hard-working, um, get things done, slightly more altruistic and less dogmatic than the Chinese, obviously. Um, and I think are generally very accepting. There's a, little, there's a little bit of an undercurrent of racism that's just slightly uncomfortable that you occasionally see. But, you know, I have more gay and lesbian friends here than I ever did in the UK. Um, I think it's easier to... People are generally friendly, particularly when you leave Sydney. You know, I've just spent two weeks in the Northern Territories and people were, you know, unbelievably welcoming and generous. And, and really, I think the only country that probably nips you in terms of providing unsought-after hospitality, and I know this will wind Australians up, are actually the Kiwis. I think the Kiwis actually... are along with the Irish probably the most friendly helpful people in the world but, but Australia obviously has a whole bunch of challenges that New Zealand doesn't um, and I think they do pretty well and and Australian women are great I mean I've obviously learned. a lot you want to give out your phone number in case anybody wants to call? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean clearly the deal with Australian women is you just say yes you say yes because it's clearly the easiest thing to do and about 95% of the time I actually think Australian women are probably right But I also understand that's why Australian men have to have sheds. (laughs) To get away
0: from always having to say right.
1: No, I think it's so Australian men have got a space in which they feel that they can be right. Because clearly, you know, um, the Australian home is run by
0: women. But isn't it the same in Britain?
1: Oh, no, I think Australian women are pretty fantastic communicators actually I think Australian women put things out there if you're talking shit they'll tell you and um, I think but I I don't think they do that from a control point of view I think they do that because they see it as enhancing the well-being of the family unit clearly there are exceptions and there are some completely barking Um, by barking I obviously don't mean suffering from a formal mental illness but I mean um Somewhat challenging and complicated and difficult people, um, who um, yeah, who, who float around the place, but I don't come into contact with them. That
0: what about often. men? Are men, go- Australian men, good communicators. Said women
1: are oh, not according, not according to Australian women, apparently. Um,
0: what about you, as an outside observer? He's been here for a while. Um. Oh. <laughs> Oh, listen!
1: I I think it's probably the same around the world. You know, people communicate with you if they feel that you're interested, they're engaged, you can be trusted, you've got something worthwhile to say, you haven't got your head stuck up your arse, and um, and probably the best, the uh, uh, probably the best conversations I've had with with Australian blokes have probably been in the middle of nowhere. You know, like miners from Cooper P D, and kind of, you know, bush people out in the middle of whoop whoop who who have a view on the world that is entirely informed by, by a unique set of experiences. And, and they seem very accepting of somebody who's come along from, you know, nice middle-class background in, you know, in London and comes out and carries on his nice middle-class background and said, you know, give me shit. I mean, they're kind of, you know, interested in what I do. I'm interested in what they do. The fact that, worlds we inhabit and, and maybe the sort of formalized level of education we've had are entirely different they're smart people you know that they're, they're, they're kind of thinkers and um you know and obviously you've got you know you know the other kind of australian male that everywhere in the world which is just very blokey blokey australian males i've got i've got my niece over here with her two young friends who's 22 and she came back from the pub last night and she said all the Australian men have just got such fantastic bodies. <laughs> they're so <laughs> healthy. And, I, I, and, I, and, you know, And I think at some level, you know, I think they're a pretty healthy race. You know, which is probably why they beat the pums at rugby. And, well, actually rugby, not that often anymore. No. Not when it counts. Um, and cricket. So, um, yeah, ah, that's, you know, met, met the odd arsehole. There are some things about your healthcare system which are great. There are some things that are diabolical, An unbelievable waste of money between federal and state. Which, you know, from the little world I had, it seems to lead to multiple duplication of resources with very little money time or effort putting into rolling out guidelines, implementing change, and nobody seeming to know what the other person's doing.
0: How do you see that manifest?
1: I don't know. I mean, there'll be guidelines for the management of diabetes, for example, and there will be New South Wales guidelines, Victorian guidelines, Queen, Queensland guidelines, yes. blah, blah, blah. There'll also be Commonwealth guidelines. Now, you ain't got that big a population where you've got that many experts in a particular field in every single state. And it'll be the same group of people basically doing most of the guidelines, and they'll say mostly the same things. But they'll come out in seven different coloured packages, and get rolled out or implemented terribly well. I mean, I, I listen. Diabetes might be an exception, actually. I think diabetes care is actually done very well here, but in some of the areas I work in, in, in mental health and, and substance use, um, I see lots of duplication. And and then GPs getting funded by the Commonwealth, but hospitals getting funded. The state.
0: Well, Kevin Rudd's talking about shaking all that up.
1: Yeah,
0: I, th- I, I think that would be a great yeah. thing. It's a hangover from the colonial days when each of the states were their own individual colony. And then when federation came through in 1901, they all came together and federated under the gov- you know, under one federal government of you know, Commonwealth of Australia. But they never totally let go of the colonialist attitude. So that's why we still have this parochial state against state thing. And there has been talk over the years of actually getting rid of the states, enlarging the power of the local governments, and taking on a lot of the roles in the federal government. And the states go. Well,
1: I, that's not personally, I think that'd be a fine idea. You know, but like then... take
0: Southeast Queensland. It's this huge metropolis. You know, maybe that becomes a megatropolis that actually comes all the way down to Byron Bay. You know, there's no the more state border. Man, It w- would seem to make a lot of.
1: A lot of sense. And the fact is that the challenges that face Sydney and Melbourne and Brisbane are exactly the same. And the challenges that face rural New South Wales are the ones that face Northern Territories. So what you want is you want a government for city and a government for rural and regional.
0: Yeah.
1: That's a much more sensible split. Um, but listen, I don't have any idea about yeah. politics, so it just makes me...
0: So you up. want to talk yeah. about your work in the mental health field? Oh... You know, the, what, what the point I'm making is I have no concept of mental health. I don't even understand what it, that truly means, let alone alcohol, drug.
1: I don't, I, don't, I don't think you want to have a chronic mental illness in many parts of Australia. I think it's the truth.
0: What is a chronic mental, mental illness? What does that mean?
1: Most mental illnesses are not like episodes of bacterial infection. They stay with you and impact on your life to varying degrees lifelong. Now, There are maybe one in three or one in four people with schizophrenia who will have only one episode in their life. But for the majority of people who have a diagnosis of schizophrenia, that is a lifelong diagnosis that will result in a pervasive deterioration in many aspects of their social, personal, and, and kind of cognitive functioning. Now, some of those people can do very well, hold down jobs, have relationships, and they're the groups who are well supported by community health services, who have got families who love them, who take their medication as prescribed, who are physically healthy, who um, have access to specialist care. But I think that's perhaps the minority. And there's a lot of people out there who, whose only contact with services is when they're in crisis and the capacity for the health system in this country to provide care out of crisis to maintain health in the community is very limited. But also, so we're
0: talking about crisis when somebody completely loses a plot and ends up okay. in a cell somewhere.
1: Um, oh, yeah. I mean, listen, jails here and the UK and, and America are full of people with mental health problems and drug and alcohol problems. But, you know, there is a, a large group of people who come from, you know, multiply disadvantaged um Neighbourhoods characterised by transgenerational unemployment, abuse, poor parental expectation, low levels of education, very few opportunities to achieve, and, and the absence of, of free higher education, of course, which is the great leveller, or should be in most modern societies, no longer present in Australia as, as it's no longer present in the UK. And, you know, if you're a 12-year-old who grows up with an alcoholic dad, an absent mum, you might have ADHD or conduct disorder, and you live out in the majority of New South Wales, away from big specialist centres. And you get into the odd fight, you get suspended, you start hanging around with the wrong crew, you get your first juvenile report when you're 14, you're smoking pot when you're 14, you know you get assaulted when you're 15, you start using a bit of heroin. By the time you're 16 or 17, your capacity to have actually developed a range of coping skills that would allow you to interact with the rest of the world on a level playing field are gone. And in Australia, and the same as in the UK, services are not set up to target and identify vulnerable individuals at an early point in their life.
0: Is there a person part in the development of an analyst's brain where if they don't learn those skills at that period of time, they're gone forever? Um, oh, it's very difficult. I mean, you're, you know, you... Is that, when in, is that when they learn those Oh, yeah. Skills? I mean, you, you, your
1: brain will keep growing, growing, making connections between different parts of your brain up until the end of your teenage years and early 20s. But I mean, there's a golden period of, you know, development probably, you know, through puberty and your early teens where you have an emerging that's where I think where you kind of can hit your potential, and if you start throwing drugs in at that stage, that becomes your coping strategy.
0: Okay this is really good. And a question I've been wondering about, and you all personally may be able to answer it. When I talk to my daughter, I often say, drugs aren't necessarily a bad thing, but for a maturing brain. It's interesting that most cultures have an attitude that you don't go to certain places with substances until you're... And the classic old age was 21, wasn't it? Is there something in that, that the immature brain at 15, 16, 17, 18 shouldn't have all these different drugs? Do you you think there's something in that?
1: Oh, no, I mean, I, I think all the evidence would say, I mean, yes, cannabis is bad for your mental health, but it's worse for those people who start smoking under the age of 15. And this is encapsulated beautifully by the evidence from the guy who runs – sorry, evidence, opinion – that the guy who runs the Hemp Embassy in Nimbin in New South Wales. And, you know, his quote is, before you try and expand your brain, you should grow it. And I say that all the time when I talk to kids or, or to healthcare professionals. So
0: if, if somebody wanted to approach the drug-taking experience… Wait till wait,
1: wait, wait till you're retired. John Howard retired, got no job. John. <laughs> John Howard safely got used drugs, and you know probably I'm not saying actually anything else on that, but um,
0: <laughs> but, but that, that you know that that's actually well the number of people I know say oh, when I'm 80 I'm going to I want to try this here and stuff. It seems like great fun, you know, um, because they don't want to do it any younger than that. But at 80, it could be a great ride. It probably ain't going to
1: do well. No, listen, there's obviously what, there's a they're, 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 absolutely, yeah. um, but. You know, delaying the onset of the use of drugs till, you know, after the age of 18 probably would protect some people from developing mental health problems. There's clearly a group of people who've got such a strong genetic vulnerability to develop a mental health problem that they will develop schizophrenia no matter what they do. You can stick them in a Buddhist monastery. And they will develop an illness. Likewise, there are a group of people who have no predisposition for developing mental illness at all, and they will stick drugs in their body day and night, and they will never develop a mental illness. They'll obviously suffer the behavioural, physical you know, risks, incarceration, you know, injecting problems, all of that sort of stuff. But they won't ever go mad. For most people, what drugs do is perhaps... Um, Shorten the lead time to the develop of an an illness and precipitate it. And once you've got an illness, drugs will make that illness much worse. There is a group of people, a minority of people with mental illness, who have some genetic predisposition to developing, for example, schizophrenia. And if they lead a healthy life with the support of family, jobs, and never take drugs, they will never develop schizophrenia. Right. For that group... Use of cannabis at an early age will be what tips those people over.
0: Okay, so but that, that but in a way they would need to know that they've got their predisposition. Absolutely, and that is how do you identify that? Oh, um, by
1: by looking in your own family. Yep. Um, if, if both your parents and a few relatives, if you've got one got... family member who's got schizophrenia, you've got a one in ten chance. So if no. you've got two, I think it goes to 20. But it's mm-hmm. not just you, no, a sibling, um, a distant relative will probably increase your
0: risk and if you know is there a, do you think there's ever going to be a dna test for mm, that susceptibility
1: no they'll probably they'll
0: they'll some indicators
1: yeah there'll be i'm sure once you yeah, know yeah, you'll be able to go along with a blood test and people say look you can shag whoever you want whenever you want and you ain't never going to get hiv and you can smoke cigarettes kingdom come you're never going to get cancer however if you drink alcohol the chance of you becoming alcohol dependent developing cirrhosis is really high so it'll be kind of, I think you'll be given your own personal bookmaker. And, you know, you're going to have to make some... Educated guesses. Yeah, exactly. And and the smart one is to reduce those risks that you are greatest at getting.
0: Yes, I know what you mean.
1: Yeah, I didn't, but I thought yeah. the words kind of somehow stuck together in a way that
0: might... make sense. Yeah, just about. So what about self-medication? Do you think that um, the human animal... Doing a bit of hyperactivity, HDAD, ADHD, ADHD uh, st- type behaviour, instinctively is drawn towards self-medication through alcohol, like we're drinking. Mm, or people with ADHD
1: coffee. would be or, would have a predisposition to use stimulants. Like, so, say coffee. Um, would that, yeah. yeah, and but I, I suppose that's probably been less researched, which is part, rather an omission, I guess, um, than things like coke and amphetamines. Sure, and there is a you know, that there are higher rates of cocaine and amphetamine dependence among those people who have had a childhood diagnosis of ADHD. But when people hear that, they go, well, there we are. You see, this is another very good reason why we shouldn't give our kids Ritalin because it's going to make them drug addicts. In fact, the research says that you know, if you're a kid with ADHD... You're the kid that clowns around in class, doesn't pay attention, pisses the other kids off, can't develop social skills, can't develop social networks, gets booted out of class so you don't do well in your exams and gets marginalised. If you give that kid, along with good you know, parental support and family therapy, you know, Ritalin, dexamphetamine, methylphenidate, whatever you want to choose, for those vital years in school, that will allow that child to interact with his peers, develop friends, attend at school, learn, achieve, and will probably actually reduce their rates of substance use as they get older.
0: Because, not because they want, but because they're in a community. And because they're they better, better socialised. Yeah, right. So so you're saying that socialisation is a critical part of, of mental health?
1: Absolutely. And whether that socialisation comes from um, faith community that cares, um, a community that supports you. You know, parents that love you. You know, I mean everyone talks about risk factors for mental health and drugs and alcohol, which are very significant. You know, multiply disadvantaged neighborhoods, you know, crime, violence, sexual, emotional, physical abuse. Um, you know, if you will an interactive cause and web uh, an interactive web of causation that disadvantages a group of people. But you have to weigh those things up against a, a set of protective factors. And it's interesting. Most government efforts actually actually tend to pay very little attention either at reducing risk factors, but certainly not promoting positive factors um, that protect you. And, and I have said that was one of the things that struck me about Australian parents is that they do strive to provide their kids with um, protection and opportunity. You know, I've never seen a. You know, and listen, I'm talking about a small group of, you know, parents who come from predominantly middle-class backgrounds, blah, blah, blah. But that's an incredible amount of time in their, you know, kids. I mean, you know, four or five nights a week, you know, it's whether they're going off to nippers or violin or water polo or mm-hmm. baseball or whatever. And, you know, and maybe that goes on in the UK, but it's just not as evident because maybe it's just smaller. So there's not distances. So you don't have to drive your kid. 40Ks to a football match or whatever. But in enhancing those protective things within communities and families and, and, and telling parents the benefits of those things is not something that's well publicised.
0: So um, you're working here. What are, you, what are your plans for the next level? I have absolutely no idea. Having just
1: come back from Northern Territories, I have to say I'm somewhat fascinated about this enormous expanse of land that's got one hundred and seventy thousand people in it. Um, you know, with I don't
0: know, I've oh, not Terry. What would it be? It'd be the size of Western Europe, wouldn't it? Exactly, and yeah. you know, it's got
1: I don't know, sixty thousand people in Darwin, twenty-five thousand people in, you know, Alice, and the rest scattered. Yeah, you know, with immense poverty, immense wealth potentially fantastic resources, a climate that's completely screwy. Um, screwy? You've got to have six months a year where it pisses down with the rain all the time and you melt when you walk outside and the other half of the year when you still melt when you go outside, it's just dry. Um, but it's beautiful. And, 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 and the people... It's not quite the same as Alice. When I went to Alice and I, I spoke to people, I said, what brings people to Alice? And it might be the same for Northern Territories. And they said it was the four M's. You know, it's the mad, the misfits, the mercenary and, you know, the kind of, um, I don't think it was murderers. I think it was the French Legion. Uh, but you have to have a certain sort of resilience to live out there and people who live there live out there because they love the other people who live there. They love the environment they're in. Um, they, love the challenges of, of living in such a, a difficult place. Um, and I'd love to say that all the people I met were wonderfully tolerant of Aboriginal people and, you know, thought this was no East Arnhem land should be their homeland. But I think the great barometer of any society is taxi drivers. And if you want to find out what a country thinks, you ask taxi drivers and taxi drivers will tell you anything. And it's fantastic. Um, and the taxi drivers, you know, who, you know, I, I got rides with when I was in the Northern Territories and I brought up issues of Aboriginal people. It's, oh, you know, bloody drunk Abbas. And most Australian people don't realise that most Aboriginal people don't drink alcohol. The largest group of non-drinkers among any Australian group are Aboriginals. You know, the fact that if you're an Aboriginal person and you drink, the likelihood of you being dependent is far higher and you're going to die on average 20 years younger than your white counterpart and that you're multiply disadvantaged against a whole raft of things people don't think about. Um, But I also, for the first time, visited Aboriginal communities that were peaceful, beautiful, inhabited by, you know... You know, families outdoors, sitting outdoors, chatting, eating, no alcohol, healthy looking kids running around the place. Oh it's just lovely. But you don't see that on the news. What you see is Tennant Creek and you see you see all the nasty side. Yeah, yeah. And there's lovely and I I met a fantastic guy who'd spent the last three years out in rural northern territories setting up solar panel systems to run internets for internet systems for small aboriginal communities but working with the elders and i kind of went sorry isn't that kind of like corrupting you know their culture blah 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 and he turned around and said actually if you work with the elders you're going to make five- and six-year-old Aboriginal kids grow up into an environment where they see working with the internet and things has actually been quite normal, and they'll listen to their grandparents about the internet and what it can do. And it will give a group who are multiply disadvantaged an increasingly level playing field to communicate and work with the world around them. And was like, oh, wow. Like, that was really smart. Um... You know, and, of course, his problem was that, you know, there wasn't recurrent funding, blah, blah, blah. But, um... Yeah, and, 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 I, and I guess the thing is, I said, oh, you know, so you're working with a functional group of Aboriginal people. And he went, yeah. He said, who else, apart from, you know, a dysfunctional government, these are his words, invests in trying to bring change among a dysfunctional minority? why don't you invest in the functional majority in order to bring about change in the community? And it was like almost an epiphany. It was such obvious common sense.
0: Would that filter down to the dysfunctional group eventually?
1: Oh, I guess so. You know, but those people are dysfunctional because the communities they come from can't, you know, can't support them or, or obviously actually don't want them there because they cause such chaos.
0: But so they the, they 're the fringe element that every community has anyway
1: absolutely, but you and, and, and our investment in our white fringe community is called policing jail, incarceration, bigotry, stigma, you know increasing marginalization you don 't bring about change in society by investing fast funds into that group I mean there have to be funds in order to rehabilitate support, but actually a government can 't do that what can do that is a maturing, functional civilization that gives those people an opportunity for citizenship again. But services don't look for that. Services look for keeping people out of jail, keeping them invisible to the community around them and not having them die. And as a a goal, it's woeful. But that's what I do. You know, don't get me wrong, you know, priority for most of, you know, people I see is don't go to jail, don't die, you know, keep your kids, Levels. the expectation is so low and expectation is the yardstick by which all of us i think you know measure our lives and the expectation should be for those people to have citizenship and if you ask patients of mine what do they want they want a job they want safe housing they want friends they want people to love they want to have an income they want to be able to kind of participate The patients I see in mental health units or drug and alcohol units get discharged to the very communities that actually, you know, led them in in part to developing all of those problems. And you can't expect someone who's got schizophrenia and a bit of a drug problem to go back to some dodgy suburb with poor transport, high rates of unemployment and high levels of kind of drug use and poor policing and to use the relapse prevention skills and to take their medication and for them not to return to crime and drugs. I mean, it's farcical. It's as unrealistic as, you know, sending someone in for a, you know, a triple bypass and the next day saying, well, look, you can go off and hike up Everest now. But they're much harder changes to bring about Um, and you'd have to get society to give a shit which is really difficult because those people cause society a lot of problems.
0: And it's easier just to whack them in jail and forget about them. Yeah, and and, and that's
1: why, so the idea of self-determination I mean it's good and bad because of course you can then go, well you're like that because you chose to be like that you know, so you, you know you played
0: your cards, you're, tough, mate. You're responsible. You create bad luck. Yeah, and yeah. actually, but therefore, the grace of God goes anybody. Absolutely, absolutely.
1: But most people don't want to think that we're special. We made the right choices. You know, it probably would have been really difficult for me to make bad choices given the environment I grew up in. You know, mm. I had really excellent role models. I had an expectation that I would go to university, that I would do well, and you know, lots of friends and family who loved to encourage me. I mean, it's difficult to kind of mess up when you've got that much support. And if you do, so fall how out, much
0: self determination was there in what well, yeah, in your life? So you yeah, basically, well, you're saying, that's, that's I... what you're saying. You know, the situations of your life created who you've become. Absolutely, the community around me
1: supported me to you know fulfill. You know, my potential. And if I'd, if I'd fucked up along the way, if I'd messed up along the way, there would have been a bunch of people and a the structure there to support me. You
0: know? Yeah, and, so, and if you're growing up in a community like we've been talking about who don't have that, exactly. they fall through the cracks. And
1: where the expectation is, I, I have, you know, young patients, and their expectation is, if they're lucky, they'll get to work in a factory. And they'll be on housing commission. And they'll have a couple of kids, but they'll probably have, you know, lots of, you know, you know lot, lots of other relationships and, you know, they don't expect to be able to participate. Wow. And and that that's normal for them. And so normality is determined by what you see. You ask kids who grow up in alcoholic families, did you have an abnormal childhood? They'll go, no. It was normal for them to come home and not be certain if Dad was happy, sad, drunk, or violent. They don't know that that's not what happens in every family. And they'll be the group who are least likely to, you know, I, I guess maybe be very worldly about things. Of course, the one thing they will be aware of is the disparity in wealth. And, and well, that's an easy measurable thing. Well, the this dis- disparity of love or happiness is harder to measure. Absolutely, and it's and, and the more visible you know, disparity in wealth is, is very visible. And in fact, that's what determines really the poverty gap between nations. It's not actually the absolute difference between the wealthiest and the poorest. It's how visible it is, because those people who are poor feel hard done by, it, and they can they can see it. And interestingly, it's either spectrum that seems to lead people particularly into problems with drugs. So I, I had. One of my colleagues who always would say to me, you know, the rich are really bored, they use drugs. The poor are really angry, they use drugs. It's probably a little bit of an oversimplification, but um, there's something in that, Mm. you know, which is why now? There's probably increasing minorities who identify themselves at either end of the spectrum. You know, there's a burgeoning middle class, because actually the middle ground is actually where most people do best. You know, and striving to support a society to have most people in that middle ground is probably the way to go because that's where most people are happiest you know I don't think someone who earns 150 million pounds, dollars a year is you know a million times happier than someone who's earning 150 grand a year I doubt the person on 150 grand a year is three times happier than the person on 50 but it's probably a more valid comparison, you know. Um, but if you come from a, an environment where you know the opportunity of you actually ever earning more than 40 grand a year, working in local factories, virtually zero. I mean, that's hard. So, um, you know, I just think it would, and particularly in Australia, that has got so much about it that says, have a fair go and be decent to people. You should be able to strive to provide equal citizenship for all people and for the Aboriginal people for whom it's possible that nothing will undo the damage that's happened. It's given them an opportunity to them to participate in citizenship the way they want to do it, whether that's playing sport, whether it's art, whether it's sending kids to school, whether it's living in peaceful communities in East Arnhem Land, fairly disconnected from... Everything else, fine. But it has to be looking at that local level. So while I think the apology is great, because it's something that's important to all Aboriginal people, regardless whether or not they were affected, and I guess the vast majority were, anything that's going to work on the ground has to be done at a really local level. And to undertake that sort of high-level community consultation, with the promise that there'll be some follow-through over decades. It's really difficult, but that's probably, you know, what needs to, you know, happen. And I, th- and I think saying sorry is a really good start.
0: Good on him. It's the only thing he does. That's a good place to wrap up. Thanks, Adam. Pleasure, Ian. Thank Pleasure, you for the beer. Ple- Good to hear what you had to say. Pleasure. Bye. Okay.
1: In what i